Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and the UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code POD, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's P-O-D. That's a Stamps.com promo code POD. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I just want to thank you guys so much for listening. I always say that I never thought I would be doing this for this long, and I really do mean that. I thought that maybe a handful of my relatives would listen, and that would be it. Um, Every time that I log in and look at my analytics, I'm always shocked to see how many people from around the world um, are listening. Uh, We have new listeners, it looks like, from Greece and the Netherlands, Poland even. Thank you guys so much. I truly, truly, truly appreciate it. Um, If you guys have any suggestions as to crimes from your area, please head over to the Patreon. Um, It is uh, Psych Your Crime, um, and we do have, uh, I will take suggestions. We have a tier where you can uh, suggest crimes for me to cover. Um, There's uh, pictures, um, commentary, uh, things that you wouldn't find on the regular podcast. Um, we also have merchandise as well. Um, so please feel free to show your support in any way. You can do a one-time donation. Um, if one of the two tiers from the, uh, Patreon, um, does not work for you, um, all that information, I will, uh, link it all down below, but I just, even just you guys listening, um, it means so much to me. So thank you. I really, really, really appreciate it. And uh, this week we are going to get into Sante Kimes. Um, she was a woman who, in fact, was notorious. She was a notorious con artist, among other things. Belle Guinness placed ads in Lonely Hearts columns to ensnare her victims. And we covered Belle before, a few weeks ago. Over 100 years later, Melissa Weeks used dating sites over the internet. But despite the difference in decades and the advances in technology, these two women engaged in remarkably similar crimes, serial killing for profit, grieving, lonely, and vulnerable. These are words that most musicians use to lay a Black Widow's foundation and their music to their ears, for they indicate that she has found someone who is susceptible to her feminine charm. So she weaves a web of deceit, 
doting on her victim, lavishing him with gifts, and pretending to be the person that he wants or needs. As she plots, so stealthily she may go undetected for years. In fact, the Black Widow serial killer typically begins her criminal career after the age of 25 and actively murders victims for decades before she's ever caught. Nicknamed after a Black Widow spider who consumes her mate after conceiving, the serial killing Black Widow typically murders multiple spouses or lovers. However, she's also likely to turn her intentions to family members or individuals outside of her family with whom she's developed personal relationships. The goal is simple. Get as rich as possible off the people around you and get rid of anyone who stands in your way. In early October, a just married Millie Weeks was arrested and charged with the attempted murder of her brand new husband while they were honeymooning in Nova Scotia. She had met her latest victim, a recent widow online, and quickly convinced him to marry her. Widower, that should have been a widow, a recent widower online, and quickly convinced him to marry her. Fortunately, he is recovering from what is believed to be a poisoning. Other, other significant others were not as lucky. Miss Weeks, then known as Melissa Frederick, served six years on manslaughter charges after drugging and driving over a spouse by the name of Gordon Stewart in 1991. Fresh out of jail, Weeks quickly met and married Robert Friedrich after meeting him at a Christian retreat in Florida. Within a year of marriage, both his health and his money had disappeared. While no one was ever charged with his death, family members described intermittent and mysterious physical ailments throughout the course of their marriage. Similar ailments plagued Alex Strategis, a 73-year-old divorced man Miss Weeks met on AmericanSinglesDating.com. In short order, his bank account was emptying and his health deteriorated. He was hospitalized eight times in a two-month period. Fortunately, a strange drug was found in his system before any permanent damage could be done, and her theft was result and her theft of all of his money resulted in a five-year prison sentence. Think these serial killers are easy to spot? Talk to Alex Strategos, Weeks' former paramour, bewitched by Weeks' spontaneity and zest for life. She drove from Canada to Florida just to have dinner with him. He was ecstatic when she moved in with him shortly after they met. Even after he began suffering dizzy spells and strange ailments, the 70-something never suspected he was being poisoned or that his love was anything other than a devoted companion. It was only after he wound up in a nursing home, after Weeks had convinced him to sign over power of attorney, that the scheme began to unravel. Now, the entertainment industry have created a very distorted image of female serial killers. They have popularized the one-dimensional stereotype of female killers that we are talking about called the Black Widow. The Black Widow serial killer is a woman who murders three or more husbands or lovers for financial gain over the course of her criminal career. This Black Widow killer was featured in the 1944 dark comedy Arsenic and Old Lace starring Cary Grant. This highly popular film tells the fictional tale of two sisters who murder elderly gentlemen by serving them elderberry wine laced with arsenic. Although they compromise less than 20, comprise less than 20% of total female serial killers, they are very real and just as deadly as males. However, they're not all of the Black Widow variety. 
What they do have in common is that they typically use quieter and less messy methods to kill than their male counterparts. The methods they use for murder are more covert or low profile, such as murdering by poison, which is the preferred choice of or MO of female serial killers interviewed in a 2006 research study. Other methods of murder that were also identified in the study do include, of course, shooting, stabbing, suffocation, and drowning. Many female serial killers are involved in theft, fraud, or embezzlement prior to becoming murderers due to their interest in material things. Although the majority of female serial killers murder for money or for profit, some do it for attention and sympathy that they receive, receive following the death of a loved one. It's not uncommon for female serial killers to be employed as caretakers in the nursing industry. Female serial killers generally operate in a specific place that they know well, such as their own home or a healthcare facility where they're employed. They rarely go trolling for victims out in the open the way that many male serial killers do, but they rather find victims within their family or workplace. As it applies to popular mythology, the news and entertainment media focus on the sensationalism of the acts of violence and torture that are perpetrated by male serial killers. The gory tales of atrocity committed by men provide enticing entertainment, while the shocking and stereotypical depictions of male serial killers serve for consumer market, so their sens sensationalized stories are good for profit. At the same time, however, media distortions do a disservice to the public. Although the graphic images of male serial killers sell tons of books and movies, they also perpetuate the myth that all serial killers are demented men. Perhaps the most infamous female serial killer is Eileen Wernos, a highway prostitute who killed seven men in Florida during 1989 and 1990. She's a unique exception to the typical profile of a female serial killer. She's not a black widow. Wernos killed outdoors instead of at home. She killed strangers instead of friends or family members and killed for personal gratification and a sense of justice. Wernos was driven to kill men out of rage and a desire for vengeance. She sought retaliation for a lifetime of sexual assault and beatings at the hands of men. She also killed Johns, our clients that picked her up along the Florida highway. She used a gun to kill her victims, which is atypical of a female serial killer. Another thing about her killings is that when she killed the Johns, it's what's called a trick roll. So a lot of times when prostitutes plan to rob their Johns, they call it a trick roll. And it happens quite often that a trick roll will go wrong. It's not on purpose, but a trick roll gone wrong isn't unheard of. And so... That's why many people were reticent to actually call Eileen Wernos a serial killer because some people believe the ones in which that she robbed her victims may not have necessarily been on purpose and that they could have been classified as trick rolls gone wrong and therefore if there was no premeditation they may not have uh, you could not necessarily have included them and then her body count technically wouldn't have been high enough for them to consider her actually a serial killer. Following her conviction, Wernos was sentenced to death and she was executed by lethal injection in 2002. She rose to infamy after the release of the 2003 blockbuster Hollywood film Monster in which she was played to great critical acclaim by Charlize Theron. 
Prior to Eileen Wernos, the term female serial killer was considered to be an oxymoron even among law enforcement authorities despite numerous well-documented incidents of female serial killers throughout history. The lack of public awareness of female serial killers prior to Eileen Wernos is due to stereotypical depictions of deranged male murderers in the news and entertainment. Prior to Wernos, the mass media almost always depicted a serial perpetrator as a man, largely due to the erroneous and paternalistic societal notion that women could not commit such heinous crimes. Wernos rose to infamy because she was atypical of female serial killers. Ironically, she became a celebrity monster because she killed like a man. Unlike the rarely discussed real-life Black Widow killers throughout history, Wernos became a contemporary popular culture icon because she divided all of those gender stereotypes. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and the UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send, and you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code POD, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's P-O-D. That's a stamps.com promo code POD. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Conte Kimes was born on July 24, 1934, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. At the time, she went by the name Sante Louise Singers, and um, she was the third of four children born to an East Indian father and an Irish mother. Sante was raised in foster homes and orphanages. After running wild in Los Angeles, she was adopted on, in the seventh grade by Edwin and Mary Chambers and moved to Carson City to live with them. After her high school graduation in 1952, Sante married her high school sweetheart, Lee Powers, but divorced him only three months later. After marrying yet another high school admirer, Edward Walker, in 1956 and having his child, Sante Kimes returned to Los Angeles where she turned to prostitution and theft. After, she met Kenneth Kimes, a millionaire hustler who grew up in California as the migrant farm worker. They married and had a son, Kenny, who grew up learning the tricks of the trade. Sante was constantly getting arrested for theft and insurance fraud. Sante spent the better part of her life fleecing people out of money 
expensive merchandise, and real estate, either through elaborate con schemes, arson, forgery, or outright theft. According to Kenny Walker, she committed insurance fraud on numerous occasions, frequented by committing arson and then collecting money for property, damage, property damages. Kimes delighted in introducing her husband Kenneth as an ambassador to people, a ploy that even got the couple access to the White House during the Ford administration and would sometimes even impersonate Elizabeth Taylor, who she ever so slightly resembled. Walker also alleges that Kimes committed many acts of fraud that were not even financially necessary, such as enslaving maids when she could easily afford to pay them. Kimes frequently offered young homeless illegal immigrants homes with promises of a big salary and a better life. Instead, she paid them nothing, kept them locked up, tortured them, and made them work constantly. After several girls escaped and went to the police, Sante was sentenced to five years in prison for violating anti-slavery laws. As a result, she and Kenneth spent years squandering his fortune on lawyers' fees, defending themselves against charges of slavery. Kimes was eventually arrested in 1985 and was sentenced by the U.S. District Court, like I said, to five years in prison. Um, and she was successfully sued by Honolulu civil attorney David Shutter in civil court. Kenneth took a plea bargain and agreed to complete an alcohol treatment program. He and their son Kenny lived a somewhat normal life until Kimes was released from prison in 1989. Kenneth died in 1994. Sante and Kenny, her son, were suspects in the 1995 abduction of a 62-year-old Leavitt's furniture heiress, Jacqueline Leavitt's, from her home in Vicksburg, Mississippi, until a July 1998 announcement by the FBI that his investigation had concluded and that there's nothing that would indicate that either of the two had anything to do with Miss Leavitt's. Now, David Kasdan had allowed Kimes to use his name on the deed of a home in Las Vegas, that was actually occupied by Sante and her husband Kenneth during the 70s. Several years later, Kimes convinced a notary to forge Kasdan's signature on an application for a loan of $280,000 with the house as collateral. When Kasdan discovered the forgery through a letter sent from his bank, he threatened to expose Kimes and she ordered a hit. On March 9th, 1998, Kenny was Kenny, her son, murdered Kasdan in his Los Angeles home by shooting him in the back of the head. According to another accomplice's testimony, all three participated in disposing of the evidence. Kasdan's body was found in a dumpster near Los Angeles Airport in March of 1998. The murder weapon was never recovered, having been disassembled and dropped down a storm sewer. In June 1998, Kimes and Kenny perpetrated a scheme whereby she would assume the identity of their landlady, an 82-year-old socialite by the name of Irene Silverman, and then appropriate ownership of her $7.7 million Manhattan mansion. I wish it was just that easy. I wish I could just walk in and be like, hi, yes, I'm this really rich white lady, and I 
am selling my mansion. Like, I, uh, how did, I don't understand. Like, when I read these stories about people perpetuating financial fraud and they just walk in, pretend to people, and they're like, okay, cool. Like, I, I can't even get a loan. And these people are convincing other people that, you know, they got someone to forge a notary so that they could get a $280,000 loan and I'm struggling to get $50,000. Like this stuff is insane to me. The pair began renting a room in Silverman's mansion in June of 1998 before she was reported missing on July 5th, not even a month. The search for Silverman went as far as Mount Olive, New Jersey. Despite the fact that Silverman's body was never found, both mother and son were convicted of murder in 2000 in no small part because of the discovery of Kimes' notebooks detailing the crime and notes of, written by Silverman, who was extremely suspicious of the two. Among other things, the two suspects kept casually asking Silverman for her ID and social. Who asked their landlord for their ID and social? I wouldn't be suspicious. I'd have kicked them the hell out. I'd have been like, oh, well, sue me. I don't care. Like, you have a $7.7 million mansion. I think you can afford the fees when someone tries to sue you for illegally evicting them. Looked away from so security cameras every time they were in the building lobby and repeatedly refused to let housekeepers into their room for cleaning. Yeah, I, I would have kicked them the hell out. Sorry. Sue me. I have more money than you. <laughs> that would have been my motto. Sue me. I have more money than you. During the trial for the Kazdan murder, Kenny confessed that after his mother had used a stun gun on Silverman, he strangled her, stuffed her corpse into a bag, and deposited it into a dumpster in Hoboken, New Jersey. Kenny also confessed to murdering a third man, a banker by the name of Syed Bilal Ahmed, at his mother's behest in the Bahamas in 1996, which had been suspected by the Bahamian authorities at the time. Kenny testified that the two acted together to drug Ahmed, drown him in a bathtub, and dump his body offshore, but no charges were ever filed in that case. Kimes denied any involvement or knowledge of the murders, and she claimed that Kenny confessed solely to avoid the death penalty. The investigation into the Kimes began officially on March 14, 1998, when Kazdan's remains were found in a dumpster near LAX or Los Angeles International Airport. The FBI and LAPD detectives assigned to the investigation focused on the mortgage loan application with the Ford signature that falsely linked Kazdan to a house in Las Vegas, which had been partially burned down in an attempted arson. Of course it had. The supposed homeowner turned out to be David McCarran, a homeless man who said Kimes and Kenny had lit the fire themselves. He also claimed to have been forced to stay in the house by the Kimes, who had hoped to collect insurance money from the loss of the home. Investigators also located Stan Peterson, a second man who confessed to selling a handgun to Kenny, which he used to kill Kasten. He was told of several potential felony charges stemming from the murder and mortgage fraud and reluctantly agreed to cooperate with the police in apprehending the pair to avoid prosecution. At the end of June 1998, Patterson got a call from Kimes about an expensive townhouse in New York's Upper West Side. She wanted to sell for $7.7 million. 
the building was owned by Silverman. She needed his help with the paperwork. Patterson agreed to meet her in New York on July 5th. He informed the FBI about a scheduled meeting before he left on July 3rd. Two days later, Patterson met Kimes at the New York Hilton that evening around 6. Around 7, Kenny arrived at the Hilton and approached him. Upon his appearance, the FBI and NYPD officers quickly moved in to arrest them both. The Kimes had stolen a black Lincoln Town car from a rental car dealership in Utah the previous May using a bounce check. When the police found the vehicle in the following days on July 6, they searched it and found what one officer called a treasure trove full of evidence. The stun gun, forged social security cards, two separate handguns, a pair of handcuffs, a folder full of various forms and applications related to Silverman's mansion, a set of 15 notebooks on which Sante had written detailed descriptions of mortgage fraud schemes involving many intended victims, including both Silverman and Kasdan. Although the Kasdan murder occurred first, the Kimes were tried in New York City for the Silverman murder first. Evidence recovered from their car helped establish the case for trying them for Kasdan's murder as well. The Silverman trial was unusual in many aspects, namely the rare combination of a mother-son team and the fact that no body was ever recovered. It's very, very rare in the United States to try someone for murder without a body. Um, you hear and see in American television shows and, and movies, no body, no, no case. Um, it's not necessarily true. Like I said, it's super, super rare. So um, they just don't like to go to trial without a body. Nonetheless, the jury was unanimous in voting to convict them, not only on murder, but of 117 other charges, including robbery, burglary, conspiracy, grand larceny, illegal weapons possession, forgery, and eavesdropping on their first poll of the subject. The judge also took the unusual step of ordering Kimes not to speak to the media even after the jury had been sequestered as a result of her passing a note to the New York Times reporter David Rode in court. The judge threatened to have Kimes handcuffed during further court appearances if she persisted and restricted her telephone access to just lawyers. The judge contended that Kimes was attempting to influence the jury as they may have seen or heard any such interviews and that there would be no cross-examination as there would be in court. Kimes had earlier chosen to not take the stand in her own defense after the judge ruled that prosecutors could question her about the previous conviction on slavery charges. During the sentencing portion of the Silverman trial, Kimes made a prolonged statement to the court blaming authorities, including their own lawyers, for framing them. She went on to compare her trial to the Salem witch trials, oh Jesus, and claimed that prosecutors were guilty of murdering the Constitution, oh God, before the judge told her to be quiet. When the statement was concluded, the presiding judge responded that Kimes was a sociopath and a degenerate and her son was duped and a remorseless predator before imposing the maximum sentence on them both. This amounted to 120 years for Sante and 124 years for Kenny, sent effectively sentencing both of them to life. In October 2000, while doing an interview, Kenny told Court TV that 
by pressing a ballpoint that uh, Kenny held court TV reporter Maria Zone hostage by pressing a ballpoint pen to her throat. Zone had interviewed Kimes once before in prison without incident. Kenny's demand was that his mother not be extradited to California, where the two faced the death penalty for the murder of Kasdan. After four hours of negotiation, Kenny removed the pen from Zone's throat. Negotiators created a distraction, which allowed them to quickly remove Zone and Russell Kimes to the ground. In March 2001, Kenny was extradited to Los Angeles to stand trial for the murder of Kasdan. Uh, his mother was extradited in June 2001. And during that trial in June 2004, while he was facing the death penalty, Kenny changed his plea from not guilty to guilty and implicated his mother in the murder in exchange for a plea deal. His mother should not receive the death penalty if convicted. Kenny then testified in trial against his mother, exposing every detail about their multiple crimes and describing how she indoctrinated him into becoming an accomplice. Kimes again made a prolonged statement denying everything and accusing police and prosecutors of misconduct, stating that she was again, uh, um, again and was ordered by the presiding judge to be quiet. The sentencing judge in the Kazdan case called Mrs. Kimes one of the most evil individuals she had ever met in all of her time as a judge. Kimes is currently, was, currently, was, not currently, was, serving a life sentence plus 125 at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in New York. She died in 2014 on May 19th. Then her son is currently serving life plus 124 at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in California. So they, on top of, she got 120, he got 125, and then they got life prison, life in prison on top of the 120 and the 124. So she was serving 120 plus life, and he was serving 124 plus life, um, which means they got natural life sentences. They're not getting out anytime soon. Um, so that was the story of the Kimes, um, mostly of Conte Kimes. She was pretty much a black widow who indoctrinated her son into joining on her escapades. Um, next week, we will do the Hart family. Um, is it a story of a family whose children fell through the cracks of the foster care system? Or is it a story of white savior complex gone wrong? Um, I will let you decide. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.